You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. I'm Avery Smith, and I'm here to invite you to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. Whatever your own relationship to gender and spirituality may be, you will find yourself enriched by the stories shared by my guests, who so far have ranged in religion from Christian and pagan to Jewish, Sikh, atheist, and beyond, and have hailed from the U.S., Chile, Poland, Australia, and more. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts, or read along with episode transcripts by visiting blessedarethebinarybreakers.com. See you there. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, as always, before we get started, I have to thank my patrons. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors. They are keeping me from doing unspeakable things on the street to keep my crippling content creation addiction going. So for this week, I have to thank Bryson Cooper. Thank you so much. I truly could not do this without you. And for anyone listening who wants to join their number, please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. For a dollar a month or $5 a month, you get extra content every single week, including my show with the Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic, Timothy McPherson where we talk about religion, news, Satanism, Christianity, theology, meditation, whatever is on our minds that week. You also get early access to various shows and different content, and you get special access to me as a creator. I also realized today that I'm constantly forgetting to mention my Discord server on the show, which is really sad because the Sacred Tension Discord server is kind of amazing. It has so many interesting people. There's constant interesting conversation going on there. And there's a link to that in the show notes as well. So if you need some like-minded, degenerate heathen friends to give you company at 3 a.m., then please join my Discord server. And finally, this show is sponsored by the satanictemple.tv. There is all kinds of fascinating stuff going on at the satanictemple.tv. They have an incredibly creative community, and there are live streams, feature films, documentaries, talk shows. There is a cooking show. There is a satanic puppet show. You should definitely go check all of it out, and you can get one month free using my promo code, SACREDTENSION all caps, no space, at checkout. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, I'm delighted to welcome my friend and colleague Vivian to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm fairly okay. (laughs) (laughs) We were just talking before we started recording about how exhausted both of us are. So this show might be a bit more loopy than usual. So to like put things into perspective, the, the front bumper of my van just has started falling off. Like it it will just like, (laughs) like it's had terrible mouth cancer and its front jaw is now just falling off. And (laughs) so I had to, but because I can't afford to take it to the shop yet, I got 
twi- like uh, uh, snap ties. And I went under the hood and got it like snap tied the, the, the bumper onto my van. And I'm just like praying to baby Jesus that it will not fall off. So that's my day. That is like the metaphor for how my day is going. I, I shattered my phone earlier today, which has been great fun. The, the feeling that you have glass shards in your hand where they may, may or may not be. You are... <laughs> certain that your hands are just riddled with infinitesimal slivers and i understand the 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 car issue i i had my arm pinned in the wheel well of my car over the weekend trying to replace a headlight because i am not a person who does things like that no no i am not a handy fellow (laughs) neither i am not a handy fellow either that is what this is straight men are for (laughs) to to do car things (laughs) for me so anyway Tell us some about who you are and what you do. My name is Vivian Deasson, and I am one of the members of TST's Ordination Council. I am also a on the leadership council of Grey Faction, and I'm a general wastrel who happens to just consume all of my hours with books. Uh, so the the end of my name is perhaps uh, indicative of that's indicative of why I chose it because that is name taken from the character in a horseman's book called Arabor or Against Nature or Against the Grain, where Jean de Saint decides he's going to reject the world and build an entire fantasy with inside of his own house, lining it with all of his favorite books, an or uh, something called the mouth organ, which is a thing that can sim- that can simulate the tastes of music with alcohol, that sort of thing. Amazing. So we are getting right into it. You are, I would say, an expert on dandyism and decadence. And you, you bring that perspective into Satanism. And it's just fascinating. And, and, and I feel like we probably have some crossover and interest because Oscar Wilde is my favorite uh, favorite author ever. He was a huge influence on me in high school, and he continues to be my favorite writer. Your first name, Vivian, uh, especially how it is spelled, is correct me if I'm wrong. The also the name of his son, with yes. the exact same spelling. Uh, he had two. He had two sons, Cyril and Vivian. And Cyril died during World War One, but Vivian Holland went on to be an, an author in his own right. So let's start by laying down some definitions. Your area of fascination and expertise is decadence and dandyism. Let's ex- let's define both of those. Well, I have a great thing from uh, Jules Amade Barbet d'Orvelli, where it was like dandyism is a thing that almost as difficult to describe as it is to define. Beautiful. Uh, Barbet wrote an essay on Bo Brummel or George Brummel, who is usually cited as the original dandy, which is debatable. Uh, but it was called called On Dandyism and George Brummel. And, and what year was that, by the way? That would be 1830-something. It was okay. not long after Brummel died. But his the entire the point of this entire piece was to kept he was captivated by the sight of a decaying Brummel he saw in Cain and was transfixed by the idea of dandyism because even in Brummel's like depleted state before he was institutionalized, he was still trying to adhere to this this sense of self and this poise. Hmm. 
And for for dandyism, for me, it, it's it's a, it's it's hard to define because it is unique to each individual dandy. People, when you when you say the word, people go, "It must be the clothes. It must be their clothes horse." There there are many definitions that say they are people who only focus on appearance. They only focus on what they can wear, but they can tend to ignore the aesthetic sense that comes with it, which is not necessarily clothing. The Baudelaire defined a dandy. Charles Baudelaire was also a dandy and a friend of Barbie de Orvelli, and he was going to write about Brummel, but then read what Orvelli wrote and was like, well, fuck, I can't write it. Sorry, can I swear on your show? <laughs> this is this is a show by Satanists for Satanists and anyone. So yes, absolutely. Great. <laughs> well, good it because is, it is marked. It is marked as explicit on on Apple Podcasts for a reason. Yep. It's like that. Uh, the metaphysical phase of dandyism as one who elevates aesthetics to a living religion. That the dandy's mere existence reproaches the responsible citizen of the middle class. Dandyism, dandyism in certain aspects becomes close to spirituality and to stoicism. And these beings have no other status but that of cultivating the idea of beauty in their own persons, of satisfying their passions, of feeling and thinking. Dandyism is a form of romanticism. Contrary to what many thoughtless people seem to believe, dandyism is not even an excessive delight in clothes and material elegance for the perfect dandy. These things are no more than the symbol of the aristocratic superiority of the mind. Hmm. And that was a quote from uh, Baudelaire. Baudelaire, yes. Yeah. It reminds me of something that Oscar Wilde said in De Profundis, which was his letter to Lord Alfred Douglas from prison. And I, it's been years since I've read it, but he has this line where he's like, I'm... I am in the church of I am in the church of beautiful material things. I am in the church, and it's like elevating, elevating that poise and that material beauty and intellectual beauty to a to a spiritual domain, almost to to a religious spiritual level. Am I getting that right? Yeah, and and, that, and that's only and for me that's only one side of it mm. because dandies aren't entirely just people who wear suits and i have a whole whole bit on that for later in this conversation because dandies baudelaire and diovelli both said this in in certain in different ways that that dandies arise as part of a culture and a response to that culture Mm. that they are standing as a remote and rebellious force against what is deemed permissible uh for brummel in particular brummel was friends with the prince regent prince george and he set the tone for what fashion became what what fashion was when he was doing when he was ultra starching his cravats and wearing exceedingly tight pants and washing <laughs> his boots in champagne allegedly he was setting us a, a tone and a standard for how everyone around him would then take on and, and appear hmm. while uh, the the prince regent's actual tastes were more foppish because he was very much like i like color i like costumery i love extravagance and and brummel liked extravagance too but brummel is a very is one side of this coin when everything else is but it is responsive still to a society that was getting incredibly preposterous and how it was choosing its colors because if this was on the cusp of the industrial revolution so there were more dyes there were more fabrics 
and he was taking it to this staunch place of like def- redefining what his self was against all of this. Hmm. It makes complete sense to me how this ties in with Satanism for you. When we were texting earlier today in tr- about this conversation, it's like, you know, I would like to talk about satanic dandyism and you were like, well, that's just dandyism. And or something along those lines. And I'm t- and I'm absolutely seeing why how you know, kind of standing in not in opposition but in in complement to and in defiance of the fashions of society and raising the material and intellectual to a religious status everything you're saying so far it make it makes perfect sense to me how that connects with your satanism it's oh it was always kind of an element of who i who i was it was there was a, a joke I, I with a bunch of nannies I've, I've spoken to where we talk about the time we realized we were one because you're not really supposed to call yourself when other people call you a dandy but that's not necessarily true. You figure it out early on. It's like, how did you react to the first time you scratched an important object in your life? Hmm. Are you, are you, you are you asking are with, you asking me? Are you asking well, me? So by yeah, you, so, can, you can answer that so one. So when I okay, what was the question was? And how did you react when you scratched an important object? The first time you were cognizant of scratching something that was important. I don't remember. Which is probably an indication of something. <laughs> well, yeah, but this is just well, this is just a form of dandyism. But a lot of dandies have a very clear moment in which they have damaged something that was a thing that they needed, adored, or hmm. there, there's a there's a a part of you that just leaves once some of this damage occurs because you it is it is damaged the beauty of this thing, and you can appreciate the broken thing as well. Or the scratched thing, but there's this 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 sickness and this like it's not what it should be and it's not correct now. That's so interesting, yeah. But not everyone has that re- reaction because yeah. the dandyism is not necessarily just refinement, but it is commonly a resistance to imposed social standings or imposed ideas of how people should be. This is why you find a lot of prominent dandies that get spoken of in history or probably or are very clearly or probably were queer. Of Diavelli and Charles Baudelaire being notable exceptions, they were very much cishet men. Would would Quentin uh oh what was his name? The British the Quentin Crisp? Yes. Crisp. Would would he would he qualify as a dandy? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Because when I think of like modern dandy, he definitely comes to mind. Yeah. And there's a a huge movement in uh, black communities, particularly uh, I'll mention one group. This is in uh, the Swinkas of South Africa were working class Zulu men who began hosting fashion competitions as a means of displaying wealth and rebellion against apartheid. So the hmm. Swinka movement was a non-confrontational protest and resistance against the oppressive and an oppressive and a racist regime. It was this standing out of I am who I am and I will cultivate the self. And when you develop this armor, and it doesn't ever have to be a suit, it can just be your aesthetic choices, your sense of self, your presence in your life, or the things that you choose to surround yourself with, becomes a 
bulletproof screen against the plagues of culture of a culture that doesn't want you or doesn't understand you and that is very consistent through a lot of dandies throughout history because you have Oscar Wilde, you have uh, Jean Lorraine, who was another, who I would I often liken as like the, the French Oscar Wilde in a lot of his, his behaviors, but you also have Radcliffe Hall and her longtime partner, uh, Una Vincenzo Lady Trowbridge. They were very out and proud lesbians in a time where that was very dangerous, but no one really knew how to stop them, you know? Because they were just so such a force of themselves <laughs> and you know when and they shouldn't have been stopped but that's how people defended themselves against unjust laws and the precious society you become this magnificent magnificent untouchable spectacle of a thing and people go well bullshit that that's rad as fuck and i can't really do anything about it you were carrying on so beautifully when while i was having to untangle my cat from my headphones so, I've so I, I heard I heard a lot of what you said, and it, and so it it sounds fundamentally queer in a lot of ways, like it yeah. it's an act of of queerness, it's an act of rebellion, it's an act of defiance, and 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 kind of an act of overcoming, as you described, it's armor. How does this intersect with your? So so I can I can see how in broad strokes how this intersects with your practice of satanism. In in maybe more specific detail, how does dandyism intersect with your practice of satanism? Well, it's it's for me it starts with a refusal to be anything other than myself. And that is a that is a compromise that people make a lot. And it's something that I've unfortunately had to, for the sake of my own well-being, pretend pretend that it doesn't bother me to do it. But there is an autonomy that goes beyond. It's a spiritual autonomy. It's a physical autonomy. It is, I will not be defined by what people perceive me as. I can cultivate how I am perceived. And with Satanism, that is that aligns very much with like the idea of rebelling against things that are arbitrarily oppressive, be it the restrictions of gender expression, the restrictions of social mobility, the restrictions of uh, physical limitation, of educational limitation, like if you haven't don't have a degree, uh, things like that. And it puts me in a place where like I set the standard for my life. Even if I don't have the broadest control over it, there are things that I absolutely can control, can improve, can be that does not involve a single other person putting that on me. And I don't have to accept that. And that was my early flirtation with Satanism anyway, being someone who was sort of fell between social cracks. I spent a lot of my childhood moving around pretty much like every few months we would move to move to a different state. Uh, so I had to I had to bring many forms of myself to try to blend into society to the point where I went, no, I'm me. And you can either take it or leave it and I will just deal with it because I'll be ridiculous and amazing. And everything else can back the fuck off. And that may not seem, may not answer your question as as nicely as you'd want it answered, but it, it's these things are ingrained. And so it became a, a, a spiritual rebellion that then very much 
fell in line with satanic idea. That makes complete sense to me. Also, uh, Byron was a dandy. Yes. Yes, he was a dandy. No, I mean, all of that makes complete sense to me. And it there's there is something really, really powerful about being being like, okay, everything in the world is very much out of my control. I feel out of control. Things happen to me against my will. And yet, in spite of all of that, I am still going to comport myself with authority. I'm, I'm still going to carry myself with, with empowerment is basically what I'm hearing you say. It's like, against, yeah, there are some undeniable things. Sorry. No, 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 no. Please go on. There are some undeniable things about yourself that you have to hold fast to when things are bad, hmm. even when things are good. You don't want to lose yourself. And so uh, a lot of people will also describe dandyism as the cultivation of the self. And so you surround yourself with things that reaffirm who you are and the person you want to be and the image of yourself you want to project. And it's, but it's, and everyone does this to some extent, but in dandyism, you're very key, keyed into what those things are for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I can see how deeply that syncs up with Satanism and how that, that kind of rhymes with the religious practice of Satanism as well. And, you know, just listening to you talk, it, it reminds me of how often I feel like people don't grasp just how deep Satanism is part of who I am. Like I am a Satanist to my bones, to my marrow. I am a Satanist because Satanism is so integral to my development of myself. Like exactly what you're saying and to that sense of triumph and overcoming, you know, facing uh, live growing up in ex-gay therapy in the South. It, it is so integral to who I am that so often I feel like people don't grasp just how deep a part of, just how deeply I am a Satanist. <laughs> and, yeah, and I, and I think yeah. sometimes people don't even think about how deeply Satanism is part of who they are. And if you don't have mm. that conflict where you go, this upsets me on a fundamental level because these are my principles and this is what I do. I'm not saying you need to reassess your, your Satanism, but you need to figure out why it's not as resonant and it's okay. If it's not, you can, you can be part of a community. You can embrace ideas without them being integral. But for me, I don't know a life where that isn't the case, but Mm. I also realized at a young age, I've, I've probably been a Satanist since I was about, 10 same and, <laughs> yes and it's something that just came out over time and it was and I, like the church of satan never resonated with me because i didn't i didn't think it was self-creating enough even though it, it is very you're you're a master of your domain you are you can strike back you can take control that didn't seem fun that seemed angry i know exactly what you mean it wasn't self-generative it wasn't authentically like it didn't have the creativity. Yeah. Yeah. You can be rebellious. You can be blasphemous. You can because like, listen, all the dandies I've mentioned so far have been people who have gone against the grain or who have 
upset people tremendously by being so deep in their convictions of who they are. And th these things should have aligned. And those, those things didn't align too much with the way that like COS was presenting these things. So I was, I was sort of very free form romantic and the decadent Satanist mm. before I ever found more philosophies that Cohen, that, that sort of converged with my own view. What lessons do you think the current satanic community learn from dandyism if if they want to you know like what what lessons are available in terms of aesthetics and so on within satanism i think being considered uh, not not cons like not con being considered as a person but you how you are the active choice to consider and analyze and compare how certain things work for you and your community and what these things mean together. And it's okay to be completely against a lot of things that don't jive with you, but you also have to analyze when you would externalize and internalize that conflict. And for like in very good at that up until a point where his tension became he was feeling dismissed he was feeling rejected from society so he snapped in the worst way possible which was to essentially call prince george who a, a fat man oh Not no that, he said who is that fat man as if as when prince george was speaking at a party Oof. so being dismissive of royalty being Oof. dismissive of a guy who was paying all of your debts and it was, you have to know that line. So there's a lot of like trial and error in the cultivation of the self that you should also learn from past mistakes, but you should also have fun with it. It should be something that mm. the, the, the core thing I want people to take away from it is that it's okay to not do what everyone else is doing. It's okay to stand apart from things if they don't feel okay to you. And rather than being destructive, you find a way of thriving within it. You find a way of making it, making a situation yours or finding the thing that brings you joy or reaffirms that part of yourself that wanted to be a part of this in the first place. I think that there is something really profound about what you just said. What was his line? Who is that fat man? How one of the pitfalls is dismissiveness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was expecting you to say something, you know, when you said, oh, he snapped in the most terrible way. I was like, oh, OK, who did he murder? Like, like what did he, himself? <laughs> he drank. He drank too much absinthe and then went on a killing spree. Um, but no, there's there's like real wisdom in that of his breaking point was when he said, who is that fat man? And that part of the temptation or, or part of the one of the easy pitfalls is standing apart without being dismissive yeah does that make sense and yeah and, and that's something that gets leveled, leveled against dandies all the time that they are stoic they are reserved they're assholes because they are uh miss they, they are very dry or they are unnecessarily cruel which is not always the case if we look at oscar wilde he would say a bunch of stuff to rile people up at parties or yep. to so there was an, an author named charles swinburne who said that he was this 
just horrible sexual predator and monster. And Oscar Wilde's response was, he has never had sex in his life. Like that was, <laughs> Wilde was just like, no, that just cut it. You're done. <laughs> and Wilde would know. Yes. And but Swinburne was trying way too hard. And so yes. there's a, there's a, a, a cruelty applied to dandyism that's not necessarily there, but the, and it, you don't always have to be a wit to be a dandy. It does help because it's, it's a defense mechanism. It's how you fight if you can't do other things. Hmm. But my, man, my, my train of thought just went off. No, 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 no. No, I, I, but I hear what you're saying, how it's, it's always, you know, that there's been a, you know, cruelty assigned to dandies, but it is, that is not necessarily true. That is, that doesn't necessarily, and there's, there's a place for wit. There's a fine line between wit and cruelty. Like there's, it's a, it is a razor thin microscopic line. I absolutely hear what you're saying about how the, the, the breaking point can be snideness the breaking point can be dismissiveness and honestly standing apart without being dismissive and honestly you're so good at that like you're <laughs> you are very 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 good you know i i watch you interact with people online and i see you and, and you're just so very good at just not dismissing people <laughs> like you're you're very good at just letting people have their thing like you don't trash other people's things. I I believe everyone needs that space to create their own thing, and and I mean, whatever I feel on the inside, I might might be you know upset by something. I might be be like, oh, I wish I had that. I wish I'd had that idea. This was a, a big. This is a big deal when it comes to like literary dandies. The there's a competitiveness and a fighting essence to it. I mean, back going back to to Wild and his relationship with Bram Stoker. Oh, like I didn't even know about this. Oh, they were childhood friends. Well, frenemies. I had no idea. I so, knew that. I knew. So, so I. Here's a piece of. Before we get to that, a, a really fun piece of wild trivia is that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Oscar Wilde met with a publisher, or or had a had a dinner party, and it was during that meeting that the publication for Dorian Gray and Sherlock Holmes was decided. It's like it's like Sherlock Holmes and Dorian Gray came into existence at this at the same night at the same dinner table. Anyway, sorry, go that, on. That's so, that's very, very cool. So yeah, that's with, my piece of trivia. <laughs> so uh Stoker and Wilde like Oscar Wilde's mother was very fond of Bram Stoker. Oscar went to the United States and famously kissed Walt Whitman because Bram Stoker had been a just 19th century fanboy for Whitman. So Wilde went and just one-upped him on that. <laughs> and it was a tension that kept growing and growing and growing and being very petty and, lit and literary. And then uh, Wilde was imprisoned. And that's when Dracula happened. And mm. there are some, there's one... I cannot remember the name of the person who wrote this paper, but there is a, an academic paper that is making the, the connection that Dracula is Oscar Wilde hmm. and that the not in like direct action, but in like what Stoker saw that he symbolized hmm. in a corruption, a corruptive, seductive like this is why it's really great that the the 90s 
Bram Stoker's Dracula film is so heavily keyed towards a decadent color palette yes. because they were making that case and he was making it very clear that like decadence is in this yes. Dracula is this like gnawing decadence and Hmm. So that's why on my arm here, this is, um, sorry for the listeners yeah, so, of this podcast. So he's, so he's showing me a tattoo on his forearm, on, on the inside of his forearm. Yeah, so this long, these long lines here that kind of look like a tower, mm-hmm. this is actually Aubrey Beardsley's signature from the back of Salome. Oh, amazing. And then there are bats here to, rec- to symbolize the possible connection to, to right. wild being... So, so let let's put all the literary connections here together. Salome is one of Oscar Wilde's most celebrated plays, and then of course Dracula. You know the the bats representing Dracula. But yeah, so so Bram Stoker basically seeing the potentially possibly painting Dracula as like this excessively decadent figure who is kind of to his core predatory. Yeah. And, you know, is there some truth to that when it comes to Oscar Wilde? Because good, I, I brought this up last week in my uh, conversation with Ben Burgess, where it's possible that a lot of the sexual activity that Oscar Wilde engaged in with Rent Boys would today be considered uh, child sex abuse. Yeah. And so was there a, there, there was obviously a dark side to Oscar Wilde. And so to what degree do you think Bram Stoker is correct? I, I, I think he's probably not entirely incorrect, but I also think it was uh, him painting the, picture of wild being corrosive and destructive to him as well Mm. uh there is there is on this is i don't i don't know if the stoker estate is still particularly litigious but there is an ongoing theory that broker himself was uh was probably queer in some some capacity am i about to get sued by <laughs> by the Stoker estate. Anyway, no, go on. But <laughs> no one, they were no one, at one point. I don't know if they still are. No one knows. No one knows. I. No one knows I exist. So it's fine. Yeah, but yeah, there there was the implication because that's why the 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 anecdote about Walt Whitman and Wilde going out of his way to meet him and hmm. you know pop off about that was also trying to clap back at Stoker invading his family and be, being rather his mother being rather fond of Bram Stoker. So it's like, I don't know. This is getting way off the, the rails yeah. for what this show is, but No, no, no. I mean I love I love all of this stuff though. And I I totally forget how we even got onto this tangent. But this this is the kind of lore that I love. And it's my favorite literary period. I love late late Victorian, early Edwardian period. That's my favorite period of writing so yeah no I, I i we could go on about this forever so the so so at the beginning of the show we threw out another word which was decadence yes so we've discussed dandyism some of the defining features for you about dandyism and you know that dandyism is queer it is rebellious it is it stands in defiance it is more than simply clothing 
it has the pitfall of snideness on occasion. So we've gone over all of that. What is decadence? Well, in the the more historical view, it is the it is decline, it is decay, mm-hmm. and the the biggest period of decadence people refer to when they t- particularly in the time frames that we're talking about the f- famous dandies and decadent literature, the fall of Rome is like the the pinnacle of decadence. It was this glorious expansive empire that crumbled into darkness and christianity and <laughs> and there's a there's actually uh, some leading theories on what causes periods of decline and one theory is that christianity itself causes this because it is removing the your agency in the world why do why do you care if things last if mm. your eternity is not here mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. And and so decadence having to do with decline, with moral decay. So I personally associate the word decadence with my experience growing up gay in the church because gay people and trans people were always accused of being decadent of ushering in decadence into society and so whenever so if if ever people hear me you know say hello degenerates on my show house on my patreon show that's how i start every show you know degeneracy and decadence those have become terms of empowerment for a lot of queer people because it was they were weaponized against us and it's kind of a for me it's worth questioning whether what society calls decadent and degenerate actually is whether it actually is those things whether it is actually the decay of society it's worth questioning that yeah so the the, the first uh, quote unquote decadent piece of literature that people cite is arabor by by horsemans and he wrote it in a response to naturalism uh, because naturalism was very obsessed with the lives of the ordinary, the destruction of that's a, Zola. Z- Z- Zola was like yeah, the the, the okay. Zola. D- just making sure that I have all my figures right. Okay. Yeah. So Zola and the the naturalist school, Horseman's was originally a part of that, and he kind of got fed up with it because it wasn't. It, it, I mean, it was making a point, but it was very. It's very repetitive to be like, yes, this woman is slowly starving to death on the streets of paris how many times can we write that story (laughs) yeah so 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 naturalism was a literary style that kind of focused on the hyper real it was like hyper realism and like the mundane hyper reality of life of like living in this city you know providing for children so on and so from doing a job, that kind of stuff. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, very much. So why is Hoisman, who Satanists will know as the author of Laba, um, is it Laba or Labas? Uh, Laba. Okay. So he is the author of what Satanists will know as the author of Labas, Laba, uh, which is the first literary depiction of the Black Mass. Um, yes. But why 
why is he considered decadent? Like, why is that genre considered decadent? Like, when you read Labas, it's, like, dark and spooky and degenerate, and they're prostitutes, and, <laughs> like, they're, and they're all of, like, these, and there's the occult, and it's, like, super badass. Like, it, I fucking love that book. But why is that considered decadent literature? Well, it's, it's sort of embracing and celebrating a juxtaposition of decay and the beauty that you can find within it as well as corruption and uh subversion so after Hoisman's wrote Laba he just nosedived directly into hardcore Catholicism to the point yep. that he was actively trying to accuse priests of being satan being satanic like he went from not really giving a shit to a Christian, uh, a Catholic fundamentalist. But the reason this is important to me is that there's a a, a, a Dutch primitive uh, painting. I forget the painter. If you re- I have, it's been a bit since I've read Laba. I could look it up. It's right here. But um, <laughs> there's a, a Dutch primitive uh, painting of Christ that he goes into excessive detail on the grotesqueness of the depiction of Christ and it's and how moving it is and this this painting became one of the things that like pushed him over the edge and in directly back into Catholicism Catholicism hmm. so there's this uh luxuriating in the vileness of the mind of the world of the tensions and dis- disgusting behaviors of humanity uh, and it's decadent because it sort of rebels in that. Hmm. And a lot of decadence is jarring. It is the worst people. Uh, Jean Lorraine wrote Nightmares of an Ether Drinker after he drank ether for a while. And he was basically recounting through through fiction, though, the nightmares and horrific visions and the anxieties and mental frustrations and just absolutely the obscene horrors that were being forced into his mind through this experience. And so decadence is just a kick the door down. You want to talk about what people are feeling? Well, let's really think about what makes people feel disgusting, how people revel in that, how people find beauty in death and the destruction of nations and this. <laughs> and there's there's also a positive spin on it, which is what I brought up earlier as well. Not that that isn't positive. Like, I'm definitely into all of that. I'm here for it. And it's it's worthwhile asking how many of those things are actually destructive. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that is very, very satanic. And I also see that kind of connecting with dandyism in a strange way of, well, society says this thing is is decadent and destructive. Is it really? We're going to, to drive that car off the cliff and see what happens. And, <laughs> and we're going to test the limits. And I think that there are times when that is really important. There are times when society needs to be pushed like that and i think satanists play that role now it sounds like sat uh dandyism dan dandies have played that role through history as well and decadent lit- literature yeah and it's it's it can be hard to get into because a lot of decadent authors are considered not particularly great because it's like <laughs> their their prose is 
is just plotting. Their imagery is borrowed from somebody else. It's it's very incestuous when it comes to ideas and imagery and notions. But through that, I love it too, because it's, it's, a, it's a response to naturalism, which was this very much, here is the struggle and the existence of life. And then decadence came along and was like, you know, everyone's actually an asshole and let's talk about that. Hmm. And so a lot of these characters, none of these characters are likable. You see people being uh, consumed by jealousy, by rage, by pettiness. You see obsessions with just fabrics and color and things that are destructive to a point where you're unmaking yourself through the consumption of goods and services. And all of this is just to, to make, make the case that like, yeah, things are a bit bad and everything is, everyone shares this burden of being a bit fucked up. It seems like every, every one of them has to have what I like to call the curtain chapter. You know how in <laughs> Dorian Gray, I think it's chapter 14 or 15. I, it, I know that because it's seared into my psyche. Well, we'll have to like double check if that's right or not after the show, but how there's that one chapter. It's like the massive speed bump in the book where it's just like and then he got into religious vestments and then he got into orientalism and then he <laughs> got into, and then he got into oh i don't know mauve curtains and then he got and he's like and it just goes on and on and on and on and i've noticed that that's a trend in a lot of these books <laughs> yeah and there's a there's a, a an intense nostalgia aspect to a lot of what people being seen as decadent or decadent literature gets into because when we so one of my favorite authors Jane de la Vaudere. uh so Jane de la Vaudere was another was one of the few uh women in the, de- the French decadent movement and she was in a this is somewhat ap- people now think it's somewhat apocryphal but she was not on good terms with Jean Lorraine neither here nor there but she wrote a lot of period pieces of like palace concubines in foreign lands yes. and <laughs> uh, she also wrote um an amazing an amazing thing called uh the uh the andro the androgyne andro eh, andro i cannot say the word now that's okay basically it's about spell it, spell uh, it women who get hysterectomies to be relentless demonic lesbians Ooh, that sounds amazing yes that that sounds like it needs to be a, a movie by Lars von Trier. Yes, <laughs> it's. But that's like she was very. It was. It's also like rebelling against the status quo for what women should be doing in literature, mm-hmm. because a lot of her stories are raunchy and completely debauched. She also in that in the same collection that Snugly Books put out wrote a hit piece on Lorraine being predatory, the same way Oscar Wilde was accused of being predatory yeah that's fascinating and so yeah i mean some of these people aren't great it's kind of like the beat poets how brilliant incredible writers a lot of them were creepy awful people mm-hmm. <laughs> but oh, yeah because like yeah. lorraine made his job uh turning word so he was a he was a journalist he wrote short stories he wrote poems he wrote plays i have a book back here called uh lord lillian black masses which is a written by an author who uh, lost his status in the world because he was accused of holding black masses, but he was really just an unrelenting pedophile. And Jean Lorraine 
took like made it a point to make his life hell because of it. So that guy in, re- in response wrote a hit wrote a hit piece on Oscar Wilde and Jean Lorraine. <laughs> Goodness, all of these people are just at each other's throats. And I love all of this lore because it it doesn't sound important, but I think it actually is. I think that these people are a lot of these people are like the secret architects of society. These people have an enormous amount of influence over pop culture and subcultures, which then eventually like emerge into the mainstream. And so it's like in the same way, I think Aleister Crowley and Madame Blavatsky and several other, you know, occult giants are kind of the secret architects of society in a lot of ways. So are these various writers. They've had such a huge influence, but in a in a way that we might not realize. So to anyone who might be listening to this thinking this is this is who might want to dismiss this as unimportant. I actually think it's very interesting and very important. Yeah. And if you look at like um, a lot of decadent authors influence the works that you you want to read now like robert w chambers is listed as a decadent author he was mm-hmm. a decadent writer mm-hmm. and the the king in yellow is a highly like so, uh, uh, cited book for authors like hp lovecraft and neil gaiman and then it just trickles down to um like stephen king and to all of these you know to all of the tastemakers as well mm-hmm. in various cultures yeah no it this stuff is huge yeah and, and then and all of these guys were i mean like baudelaire was one of the foremost translators of poe into french hmm. and poe being in that very gothic style sort of laid like painted the scene that decadence then copied and distorted and made grosser somehow and so these things are and and poe was also influenced by uh, writers who were who came before him, who are then tied into our how we talk about romantic Satanism, and we talk about uh, just literary freedom and vision, and all of these things. So, in in terms of decadence, and why I obsess over it is that it is this like little treasure trove of things that are the unknown influence of everything you've probably ever read. Yes, And sometimes exactly. it influences things where people who write don't know they're influenced by those things. Absolutely. In the last few minutes here, for someone who is interested in developing their own satanic aesthetic, point their ship in a specific direction. Well, for, for I'll, I'll start with for me, and a lot of people are already doing it. It is just the things that you like. Yes. And you you assess the things that you like and the and the through line is it is it just the imagery that you're resonating with or is it the prose is it uh, the sound is it the taste the smell the the feeling when you walk into a room and it's a certain color or a certain temperature how do these things make you feel these things are not disconnected from your sense and your identity as a satanist or they're not disconnected from how you how you enhance your own satanism i love that and and because satanism is what our mutual friend penamu calls a carnal religion it is a religion of the body it is a religion of the material of the material world those 
things, those sensations, those uh, kind of sensual experiences are very important. And as you said, they aren't disconnected from our Satanism. So I think that's a brilliant place to start. Yeah. And so, that, and that's also the key point of dandyism. Like if you, it's that, that same cultivation of the self. So if you want to, if you want to cultivate your own satanic aesthetic, you just need to think about what actually motivates you as a person. Hmm. And it doesn't have to be wearing every black crap shirt you see, but if it is, that's dope. You go ahead, <laughs> you rock it. You can wear those prints all day and there's nothing wrong with that. It, you don't have to listen to metal. If you do, awesome. If you don't, what else is there? Hmm. And how do these things tie into your perception of yourself and how you engage with the world? Hmm. I love that. All right. Well, I think we are at the end of our time, but this has been great. You are welcome back anytime. I, I had a lot of fun. Hopefully I wasn't too rambly. Uh, I, no. This is the problem when your your <laughs> Satanism and your aesthetic view are very tied to one another. It just becomes this one like miasma of influence and ideas and interests. I totally get it. But no, I don't think you were rambly at all. And also, I just absolutely adore you. Like we see each other on a near weekly basis because of Ordination Council. So it's great to have you on the show. Now I think all of Ordination Council has been on the show, which is great. I'm just tapping all of my colleagues for content. Um, That's good. Also, <laughs> I remember the name of that book. It's yes. The Demisexes is the one about the hysterectomies creating uh, demonic lesbians. Oh, oh. also one last question before we wrap up three books that you would recommend to our audience three books on okay. this on this or any topic okay uh well i highly recommend that you get or try to find uh who is a dandy by george walden this is a, a analysis of dandyism from his perspective and it also re he translated uh diovelli's uh essay on beau brummel so that's a great one Nightmares of an Ether Drinker uh, by Jean Lorraine. I think that's a great, just like, do you want some decadence? Do you want some decadence in your face? Uh, so you should you should read that. That's If you don't like that, you probably won't like anything else. That's not true. You will probably like other decadent things, but you probably won't like a lot of French decadence. <laughs> and my last one is a, an off-the-wall one. It is The Vesuvius Club by Mark Gatiss. What is that? It's uh, Mark Gatiss wrote a three novel series about a, a man named Lucifer Box. And Lucifer Box is a Edwardian super spy. This sounds who, amazing. Who gets pressed into being a secret agent because he's queer as fuck. And it follow each book is a different uh, stage of his life. So he starts as a young uh, painter, super spy, then he's a middle-aged father, and then he is a uh, decaying James Bond. This sounds absolutely incredible. So I will put all of those in the show notes for people who want to check them out. All right, well, that is it for this show. The theme song is Wild by 117. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. <laughs>